Good morning. What a lesson this week. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't know about you. I think this is my favorite lesson of the whole quarter. But uh, why don't we open with a word of prayer? And uh, then um, Shannon will be passing around an offering to pick up our mission offering. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, as we seek to be transformed by you, I just ask that you will give us wisdom, that you will teach us, and that you will send your Holy Spirit here now to guide us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Let's turn in our Bibles there. One of these days I'm going to invest in a uh, podium that's just slightly bigger because this thing doesn't hold everything that I want to put on it. (laughs) Anybody else have that trouble or am I the only one? (laughs) Let's read Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Would someone like to read that? Just verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove that prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Thank you. So that first phrase there, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your body, what? A living sacrifice. What on earth does that mean? Well, first of all, what is a sacrifice. Something you don't think you can give? But what sacrifice was Paul referring here? What sacrifice, what picture would have come to mind as Paul was writing this? Yes. Well, if you look at the ultimate sacrifice, which was Jesus, but even then, if you look at the lamb that he represented being without blemish, perfect. You're right. Paul was making a correlation between the sacrificial lamb, which is also Christ's sacrifice, and the sacrifice that God wants us to make. So what is the difference between the sacrifice of the lamb and the sacrifice of Jesus versus the sacrifice we're to make? What's the one word distinction? Living. Living. (laughs) Not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice. So what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Take up your cross and follow me. me. I like that. Make the Lord God of your life. Giving up the way we want to live, living as God would have us. Giving up the way I want to live and living the way God would have us to live. I like that. 
It's very true. These are all right answers, by the way. Jesus took up his cross so we would have a reason to take ours. What else? What what uh, what comes to your mind when you think of yourself being a living sacrifice? There's more, so keep going. You're not done yet. We have a battle with self and sin, and we're with Christ's help to get that That's right. That's right. So so we're in a battle. And uh, God wants us to sacrifice what we want to do and be obedient to what he wants us to do. Yes, Debbie. Well, we're not just, you know, dead, lifeless kind of Christians doing that, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we are living Christians, living in Christ for his righteousness. I like that. So no dead Christianity. (laughs) He wants us to be alive, right? Like kind of like, you know, I I would that you were cold or hot, but not lukewarm, right? Daniel. You know, uh, when I think of a sacrifice, you think of the lamb that was taken to the altars in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And of course, you think of Christ who who, um, went to the cross. At the point that 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 lamb dies, they have no more life. They have no more anything. If I were to die right now, Everything that I had ever planned to, to do in the future, I would no longer, there'd be nothing. It'd be, I would be gone. And so to become a living sacrifice in a sense, it's almost as if I was to die. And my life, as far as all the plans that I had, is gone. And the only thing that's left is whatever God wants to do through me. Because I'm counting myself as good as if I had died. Okay. Yes. These are all good. I'm really enjoying this. Keep going. So we're to yield our body as a living sacrifice. Okay. What were you gonna say? I was gonna say when I was in um, when I was a freshman in college, I decided I was gonna kill myself, and so I stood up on a chair and jumped off, and like I was jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And I said, okay, now myself is dead. <laughs> now I'm going to look for the Lord. So, so he gave himself a, a visual picture. He jumped off a chair. Imagine that he was jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and said, okay, myself is dead. Now I can live in Christ. <laughs> well, you know, it's the same thing with baptism, isn't that right? Yes. So we die under the water and raised up his life. Glenn. Second, when I, when I accepted Christ and became his second, he became my Lord. I belonged to him. An old man was dead. Now it was totally a new person and sacrificed that old man. And now I'm living for Christ. I belong to him. To me, that's what sacrifice means. Amen. We belong to Jesus. Now there's something that, was there anyone else who had something? Yeah, Jim. Read it. The Christian life does not mean to stand still, but to move from that which is good to that which is better. (laughs) Very true. Very true. Now, there's one thing. You all have a common denominator in what you're all saying. What you all are telling me is that this living sacrifice simply means that we must die to self. And that's all, and live for Christ, right? And obey Him. That's, that's kind of the summary I'm hearing from all of you. 
there's something else in this if we go a little bit deeper. You were going to say something? Uh, I have a chain reference with Luke uh, 22, 27. Afflict your soul. Uh, that's the last part. And offer an offering made of fire to the Lord. So Luke twenty two twenty seven says Leviticus. Leviticus. Oh, Leviticus twenty two twenty seven says to afflict your soul. Your soul. So afflicting your heart, right? Searching of heart. I want you to think for a minute. Imagine that you lived during the time of Israel, before Christ came to this world, back in the Old Testament. And you sinned, and you were to bring a sacrifice to the temple. What kind of sacrifice would you bring? A perfect sacrifice, right? You would go and find a lamb that had no blemish, right? But whatever it was had to be without blemish. That was the common denominator. Any sacrifice that was brought to God had to be without blemish. So how does that apply to us being a living sacrifice? God wants us to live like him, doesn't he? So can we do that by ourselves? <laughs> so I love this verse because this verse is kind of like an introductory sentence to a total change in the book of Romans. Up until now, we've been studying Romans and it's been righteousness by faith, justification by faith, right? That's pretty much every chapter all the way through. And this chapter is two. It's still on the same topic, but a slightly different angle. Paul is saying now, okay, if you are justified by faith and Christ is living in your heart and you are living his righteousness through faith, then you will be a living sacrifice without blemish. And the rest of this chapter paints a picture of what a Christian who is a living sacrifice, what their life is like. Am I making sense? And when you look at it that way, it makes Romans 12 make so much sense. And uh, it fits it within the context of everything we read. It's not like a lot of uh, Christians will read this and say, see, this proves, you know, these these next verses, uh, 12 and 13, they prove that, you know, it's not the law anymore. It's just love. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, If you've taken what I've written so far, you are now a living sacrifice without blemish, which means there still is a law. (laughs) If you're without blemish, it's because against the mirror of the law, you are without blemish. Exactly. Exactly. So. Now I gotta switch mics because I want to start writing on the board over here. So if we are a living sacrifice, one thing we've covered for sure is we are not dead, right? We're alive. 
dead to self, but alive in God, right? And then we talked about without blemish. So the question that I have for you is how can you actively surrender? How can you every day, every part of the day, every moment of the day, be a living sacrifice? Because human nature wants to uh, come back to life, doesn't it? (laughs) So how can we actively surrender? Give me an example in your life of how you had an opportunity to actively surrender to God recently, not 20 years ago. I hope so, right? <laughs> I'll make you think now. Jim. Well, Ben tells us, I never go out my door before I surrender all to Christ. Very true. Never go out the door without surrendering to Christ. Or even better, never get out of bed in the morning, right? <laughs> With Yes. So, I want to look at the next section of the same verse. So we've got, uh, actually it's the next verse. So verse 1 is, be a living sacrifice, right? Holy, acceptable to God. Um. Actually, before we go to verse 1, I mean to verse 2, I want us to put your finger in Romans and go to, uh, let me see if I can remember, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Leave your finger in Romans. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's look at verses 18 and 19. Someone want to read that? 1 Peter 1 verse 18 and 19. So we are not redeemed by our works, right? <laughs> we're not redeemed by money, but we're redeemed by Jesus, by his blood, because he was that perfect lamb without blemish and without spot. And that's the sacrifice that he is asking us to be. Okay, let's look at verse 2. Uh, Romans, back to Romans 12. I hope you have your finger there. Romans 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does it mean to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Go ahead. Transform your mind from the things of this world and worldliness and transform it to godliness and things of God and heaven. Okay, so she's saying to be transformed as in not thinking about this world anymore. 
changing the okay can I do that by myself so what does it mean to be transformed changed what else a lot of Bible reading Made new. I like that. Because it's interesting, when you look at the original Greek word that Paul used for be transformed, it may be two words, that's a Greek phrase, it's very interesting that the word I for transformed is combined with another, and I don't know all the nuances of everything, okay? So I'm putting in layman's terms. This is Christina's paraphrase of, of Greek, okay? Uh, but the word that is paired with it is a passive verb. Do you know what the word passive verb means? It means it's not active, right? There's active and passive. An active verb means you're doing something. Passive verb means you're allowing something to happen. And the word, tra- the word with transformed is a passive verb. So what does that tell us? It's not us that does it. We're not doing it. <laughs> Paul is telling us God is going to transform you. Yes, Glenn. Yeah, the great apostle Paul to me was the greatest Christian. He was next to the Lord Jesus. He was he was my hero, so to speak. But he refused to allow the circumstances of this world to control his life. He controlled the circumstances. And uh, I this is something that was hard for me to learn, but I think that through prayer and that's right. He's God is not going to just come in and say, "Sorry, guy, you're being transformed." <laughs> he never forces himself on anyone. He says, "I want you to feel your need." You remember a couple of weeks ago, we went over the, the summary of steps to Christ, how to come to Jesus. And the first thing was God draws us and we do not resist. Okay. God draws us and our part is do not resist. And God is saying here, if you do not resist my drawing, I will transform you. That's what he wants to do. He wants to do that for all of us. And he says, don't resist me because I love you. And I want to change you. I want to change your life. So now I'm going to diverge a little bit from uh, the verse And I'd like to delve into the world of science for a little bit, or I should say anatomy. (laughs) So there's a few of you uh, medical people who can help me here. Let me uh, make sure there's nothing else first. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, there's a few of you medical people, so I want you to help me. How on earth 
are habits formed in your brain. I'll let you think about that for a minute. I am not an artist. I'm going to attempt an absolutely horrible drawing of your brain. Okay? I am very sorry that I cannot draw very well. You are just going to have to forgive me. Okay, I'm quite sure it does not look like your brain. But anyway, it's kind of similar. <laughs> okay, so there's different parts to your brain, right? You have, what's here? Frontal lobe. Okay, and then you've got section here. Anyone know what this one is? That's this one down here. Yeah, the occipital. We'll put that one over here. We're looking at the lobes, so I don't actually don't have any of the cortex on here. So we got the occipital lobe. There's something over here. It starts with a P. Parietal lobe. You didn't know you were going back to school today. Middle one. And then there's one more. Anybody know what this one is? Starts with a T. That's that's a organ, basically, uh, below the brain. But we're talking just the lobes of the brain. Temporal. I heard somebody say it. Good for you, Florence. (laughs) You know, this has nothing to do with it. So, so you mentioned the cerebellum. The cerebellum is down here somewhere, right? Like, I'm, I'm quite sure it doesn't look like that. I don't think I spelled it right either. But anyway, (laughs) that one wasn't on my notes. (laughs) So anyway, you have these sections of your brain. Does anyone know what each section is for? I told you you're going back to school today. Everyone knows what the frontal lobe is for, right? That's your judgment. That's your seat of judgment. That's uh, where you make all the decisions. All right. Now I'm going to have to look at my notes to see what the other three are for. You guys want to know what the other ones are for? The reptilian or the lower brain is our fight or flight. And it's somewhere in the. Hey, let me look at my paper here. It's My paper is on. Okay. Frontal lobe controls thinking, planning, organizing, problem solving, short-term memory. And movement. That's all the frontal lobe. Okay? The parietal lobe is sensory information. Your taste, touch, 
hearing, temperature gauging, all your senses, okay? The occipital lobe, you should know what this one's for. This one processes images from your eyes. (laughs) It's kind of like the copy machine part of the brain. It looks at the picture and it stores it. So all, all your pictures of everything you see are stored in your occipital lobe. And then your temporal lobe uh, takes, actually processes, okay, I should say the parietal lobe interprets the sensory and uh, the temporal lobe processes the information from the sensory. So you have two. So parietal lobe interprets it the temporal lobe processes the data. Processes your information. All right, and the cerebellum controls your motor movements. But if we go into cerebellum, then we got to get into all the other different ones like the what is it? The thalamus and a bunch of other ones. But we're not going to get into that because that's going to take us way off track from where we're going. So that's a, a very simple summary of an entirely complex structure in the human mind, right? The reason I'm showing you all this is because I want you to understand how a habit is formed. How do we create a habit? Repetition, right? Basically, they say that your brain, and this is a very oversimplification, your brain is almost like a moldable piece of plastic. And uh, every time you do something, it creates a pathway in the brain. Now, it's not quite exactly like that, but it's very close. And uh, so it's kind of like, you know how you walk through the woods and you see the deer trails? Imagine those deer trails are your habits, okay? The ones that you don't do very often are kind of like off the beaten path. But your habits that you do all the time are your well-worn, well-grooved, well-drained deer trails, okay? Uh, If you fall off the path, you can easily fall right back on it again. So what is a habit? A habit uh, is defined actually in three steps. First of all, it's what they call a cue or a trigger, something that will trigger the habit to start. And then is the second phase of the habit is the routine. It's what you automatically do on autopilot, okay? And then the third phase of the habit is a reward, which makes you want to do it again, okay? So you've got the trigger, the routine, and the reward. I would write all this on here, but I think I filled up my whole thing. Here we go. Maybe if I, you don't need all the processes over here, so we'll just erase part of this side. We'll use this. I want the other side.
So trigger, routine, and reward. So scientists have tried to figure out, well, hey, if we want to help people change a habit, then we need to figure out how to, A, eliminate the trigger and remove the reward. And then the routine won't be desirable. Glenn. Well, see, you, you use the word reward. That's a good word, but there's another one that comes to my mind. Destiny. <laughs> yes. So the when they're talking about the reward, they're basically meaning the the feeling that you get when the habit is done. Like, you know, or the sense of accomplishment or, you know, feeling happy or whatever it is that makes you want to do it again, right? And there's all kinds of habits and not all of them are bad, right? For instance, the habit of driving a car. Now, I'm not saying the habit of going into the car and getting into it, but I mean when you sit in the seat of your car, your car, the one you drive all the time, you kind of sit there and your brain just goes tick onto autopilot. Especially if you're driving the same way that you always drive to work, right? Anybody who drives to work the same place five days a week, you, you just, you get in the car, it just, and you don't even think about it. The next thing you know, you're there. You don't even know how you got there. <laughs> For me, it's when I go home at night. Sometimes I wonder if I slept the whole way home because I'm like, I don't remember driving on any of the roads. I just remember getting in the car and now I'm home. I'm in the driveway. Well, I'm glad I made it. <laughs> but all of that happens because it's a habit. It's a habit that you have learned, that you have trained your mind to do. And it's a good thing. It's not bad. So scientists, for the longest time, they thought habits were simply things to make life uh, less complicated to give your brain a break. So that way your brain can rest. So a habit is formed, brain shuts off, habit just goes on autopilot and that's it. And that's what they thought for years. You know what they found out? It's not true. <laughs> they discovered that the brain is working just as hard and just as active while you're in a habit as when it's not, but it's not the part of brain that they thought guess which part of the brain it is? It's the frontal lobe. In the frontal lobe, that's where you make your decisions, right? And there in the frontal lobe is where the decision is made as to whether you're going to follow the habit or do something different. And that tug of war is happening during the entire time that the habit is being performed. It, it never shuts off. The brain is constantly, there's a war in your frontal lobe, and you don't even know it's there, but there's a war in your frontal lobe that says, don't do the habit, do something different this time. And the other one says, no, do the habit. No, don't do the habit, do the habit, don't do the habit. And it's going on the entire time that you are performing your habit. And you, the only time you are conscious of it is when you first sit in the car and you decide where you're going to drive. If you're going to drive to Phoenix, Arizona, like Daniel and I are going to do tomorrow, uh, no, no habit there. <laughs> I've only driven there like three times in my life. So it's like, oh, let's think about this. What route are we going to take? Where are we going to go? How are we going to get there? What speed am I going to drive on these unfamiliar interstates? You know, uh, all of these things you think about because 
that's not your habit. But uh, so when you sit in your car, you make the decision, I'm going to go to work today. Your brain triggers, the habit turns on, the decision is made, and then you go on autopilot, right? So now those are good habits. What about bad habits? None of you have a bad habit, right? <laughs> no, nobody here is a bad habit, right? <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to name what they are, okay? <laughs> but if you have a bad habit... Just don't try to change my good habit. <laughs> no, don't try to change your good habit. If you have a bad habit that you are trying to break, the first thing that science will tell you is to... Do something that's not in your routine. Okay? So let's say that your habit is eating cookies out of the cookie jar. (laughs) Then the first thing that you want to do is move the cookie jar to a different room. (sighs) All right? Because what that does when you automatically on autopilot walk over to the cookie jar and it's not there, it triggers back for you to actually think about whether you're going to eat a cookie or not. And you can actually make a judgment and say, no, I don't need a cookie right now. And you can walk away. Or you have the choice, you can form a new habit of walking into the other room and starting a new habit of going to that cookie jar instead. Now, the interesting thing, they've always thought that if you form a new habit, it rewrites the old habit. But most recently, they've done some studies on mice, and I don't know how they do this, but using light therapy, they were able to turn on and off some cells in the mice's frontal lobe. Um, They don't plan to try it on humans. I'm very thankful. But, (laughs) But in these mice, they turned off the cells that made the decision as to whether or not a habit was going to be formed. So the cells that were that were fighting with each other saying, no, we're not going to do the habit this time, they turned those off. No, excuse me. They, turned the, they left those on. They turned off the ones that said, no, we're going to do the habit. Shut it off. So now the mice had no habit. And what do you know? The mice formed new habits immediately. They didn't do the same habits. They were, they were doing it. They were following the mice on a certain path. The, ma- the mice had a trail that they would go, and they would go a certain way. As soon as they turned off the habit, they started going a different way. So they waited until a new habit was formed of going a different way. And then they turned the cells back on. Now, how they do this, I have no idea, but they did. And when they turned them back on, immediately the mice reverted to their old habit. So what they discovered is that inside the brain, when a new habit was formed, the old habit was still there. But the new habit had a deeper groove than the old one. And when that new groove was removed, poof, they went back to the old habit immediately. What does it say about us? You think about it. When God transforms your life, he gives you new habits, right? He helps you create those new habits. But if there is a time that you say, okay, God, I'm done with you. I'm done. I don't want you anymore. 
I'm tired of these new habits. I'm tired of this habit of reading my Bible every morning. I'm tired of this habit of praying. I'm just going to stop those habits for a little while. Just see what happens. Immediately, you go back to your old habits. Isn't that interesting? So, if we think about it, Let's go back to this idea that the brain is like this moldable piece of plastic. This is my favorite part. If this, if your brain is like this moldable piece of plastic with these pathways that we talked about, right? The deer trails through the woods. What happens when God transforms your mind? What do you think God has the power to do? Glenn, what happened to you when you went to your smoking habit when you accepted Christ? I accepted Christ. It was amazing. I always thought that I was had the freedom to do what I wanted to. And I remember you heard the advertisement, I'd walk a mile for a camel. I think I walked two or three miles for a camel. And I thought I was doing that was my freedom. And then when I discovered Christ and he came into my life, he totally changed everything. So did you want to walk that mile for a camel after you discovered Christ? Yes, it, it disappeared. It disappeared? Something else, something else, Christina, that when I accepted Christ in my life, that what happened, the transformation is that suddenly I didn't love anyone before, before that. I loved Glenn Travel, that was the other one. Suddenly, I love my parents. I love my church family. And it's been like that ever since. But I'm fully convinced of my own personal life. I believe that a person is incapable of loving anyone until he's went through that transformation. So what I am proposing to you is that when you accept Christ, when we like we were talking about, when Jesus is drawing us and we don't resist and we invite him into our life to change us, to transform us, he can take that entire molded piece of plastic with all of those deer trails going the wrong direction with the wrong habits and he can wipe them clean. He can remold your brain if you ask him. And when your brain is remolded, you have a clean slate. And then he says, I will walk with you and I will help you to create some new paths in your brain. And together we can do this. And the only time that he will step away is if we say, God, I'm tired of this and I want my old way back. And you know what? Those old paths will reappear. <laughs> yes? Well, the PET scans that they've been doing, it's proving that 12 minutes of true meditation, the frontal lobe will grow and the other will shrink. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> the other thing that was uh, I really was wanted to uh, focus on was that we think that if we are caught in a bad habit, that there's no hope. That because it's on autopilot, I don't even think about it. It's just a knee-jerk reaction. 
But the truth is, what we learned about the frontal lobe is that it's not just a knee-jerk reaction and that a decision is actually being made every time you make a habit. So what does God say? He says, call on me. He says, submit yourselves to me. Resist the devil. And that habit will flee away. God can help us to make those decisions, to change those impossible habits that we thought we never could change. And he says here in Romans 12 too, that I will transform you by the renewing or the recreating of your mind. Isn't that exciting? Anyway, I'm sorry I uh, talked more than you guys, but I just I was so excited about what I learned. I was like, I have to share this. I have to share. <laughs> Glenn. Christina, in the Gospels, the command that's given to us more than any other, in fact, 125 times, do not worry. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. The next command is only mentioned eight times. That's to love God and your fellow man. God has said, I will be with you. Do not worry. Do not fear. A hundred and twenty-five times. And that's what I'm going to speak about the next time I speak. Well, you know, it's true. You know, worrying and fear is also a habit. It's one of those habits that we often fall into. And we do, it's one of those, it's ingrained. So it's one of those deepest deer trails that we just fall into without even hardly thinking about, just autopilot. And God says, I can remake that too. And uh, I can give you such peace that you will have nothing to worry about. Glenn. And the sad thing, most of us are in the fear of mentality. That's what we, if you talk to people and they talk about the kind of trouble that is coming, will I be able to go through it? What will happen? What? How do I know that, that I am safe in this type of thing? Instead of dwelling upon the positive things, the victory that I am with you, do not worry, I'll be with you throughout your life. That's the things that sadly that so many people dwell upon is the fear mentality of it, instead of talking about the victory of the in Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm going to close a couple minutes early because we have our Christmas program and I want to make sure we can start on time for that. So I'd like you to turn with me to our closing hymn, hymn number 318, Whiter Than Snow.